I was out with Maya one night and the last thing I remember is at six o'clock in the afternoon, we were sitting at the old Javier's in Laguna. Oh yeah, of course. And then I woke up at like midnight handcuffed to a hospital bed. The past 18 months have brought a lot of change and adaptation. And some of the ways you've adapted have been incredibly useful. You know, we took a long, hard look at what we say yes to, what we say no to. And if we weren't already really good at washing our hands, we're really good at washing our hands now. You know, so there's that. But there's this one adaptation that I'm nervous about. And that, my friends, is our relationship to alcohol and how we have adapted to use alcohol to unwind from stress and anxiety because the past 18 months kicked our collective asses. And quite a lot of us adapted by having one or many cocktails every day. And apparently this adaptation has disproportionately affected women. According to a RAND Corporation study, during this pandemic, women have upped their quote unquote heavy drinking days by 41% compared to pre-pandemic. And just so you know what is defined as quote unquote heavy drinking days, that's defined by four or more glasses a day. (laughs) That's a lot of glasses a day. So the number of us that are having more than four glasses a day jumped by 41%. I'm worried about us. And I wanted to talk to someone who has dealt with alcohol and addiction And I wanted to hear about their journey and what a life of sobriety could look like. Not all of us are alcoholics in the classic sense, but I do believe a lot of us are drinking alcoholically. And I could think of no better guide, no better teacher than my dear beloved friend, Marianne Mink. Marianne is a treasure. And if you don't already follow her on Instagram, you really should. She's at Marianne's Menu. And she is a private chef to some very fancy people in Laguna Beach, California. Think big wigs, think celebrities. And if you follow me on Instagram, you know her because during the pandemic, she and I did a live Instagram. I believe it's called an Instagram live most Sundays. And it was called cooking with Coco. And the reason is she and I have known each other since we were six and we've called each other Coco for decades, hence the name. But I wanted to have Marianne on because despite having known her for so long, I knew she was sober, but I didn't know why. I didn't know how. Also, I wanted to talk to someone living a big, rich, delicious, stressful, entrepreneurial, mother of two kids, wife, the whole catastrophe without alcohol. I mean, how many successful working career women with children do you know who are also living sober? She's the only one that I know of, and I'm sure there's a hell of a lot more of you out there that I just don't know, but right now she's it for me. So I wanted to talk to her and get her take on things and her backstory and oh, sit back, pour yourself a decompression Perrier, as Marianne likes to say, and enjoy my dear friend, Marianne Mink. I wanted to have this conversation Mm -hmm. because... I think there is this unspoken situation happening with women our age where mm-hmm. I think a lot of us are flirting with addiction when it comes mm-hmm. to alcohol. Certainly, mm-hmm. maybe more things than that. And I think COVID has only made it worse. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we talk enough about sobriety. And I don't think we talk enough about 
what that might look like. And we can't imagine our lives without alcohol. And it's so knit into the fabric. And then you and I were talking about, I was like, oh my God, you know what? I don't even know your story. Right. I don't even know your story about it. So I thought we could start with like, tell me your story and I'll tell you mine. So as a child growing up in Laguna Beach or in Laguna Niguel in South Orange County, I learned how to live pretty fast and loose at an early age. And it's always a symptom of something else. In my family, my parents were much older. Mm -hmm. My mom was a nun before she got married, which seems like such an amazing thing. And also, and P.S., we used to call her nun patrol back in the day. (laughs) Still do. Still do. But also, I want to preface everything with like, I understand that all parents, I'm a parent, we're all just trying to do the the best best we we can. We're just trying to do it. And some people just did more than others because they were capable and some yeah. weren't. So that said, in my house, my mom was an ex-nun. My dad was gone all the time. I felt like I was like alone in my process of upbringing and I didn't really have a guidebook. It's so selfless to become a nun. That's such an amazing commitment, but it comes with a list of things that maybe someone doesn't want to do or want to face. Yeah. And so I yeah. mean, huge sacrifice, but what kind of person makes that sacrifice? And so when that person changes gears and gets married and has a family, she, to no fault of her own, she wasn't capable of raising two kids alone with a husband gone. Like she just didn't have the tools. And so I was my own tools. I mean, you were there with me. I was right there with you. And I was on my own in so many ways too. Right. Yeah. And so when my dad died at 15, I felt like I lost my cheerleader. And in my family, it was always my mom and my brother and then my dad and I. Wow. So after he was gone, I felt like I didn't really have anyone. It's not the case. I mean, my mom yeah. is my mom. Yeah. But in yeah. my head, in my heart, it felt like I was alone. And yeah. so I latched on to drinking and using, I mean, nothing major. We all just like smoke pot and drank beer or stole parents' alcohol, stole parents' But it was too much too soon. And it was that for like the rest of my career in using. And thank God for people like you and Joss, the Frandies and Heidi. These are all our friends that we grew up with. These families that I didn't know how to have a family. I did all of our Christmas decorations. Like on Christmas Eve, I used to go to the Royball's house and have Christmas Eve because my mom didn't entertain on Christmas Eve, didn't plan anything. Would say every year she would say, you know what? We're not doing Christmas this year. So that's how I grew up. And then when it came to college, I did all my own applications. There was a woman, a girl, Danielle, her family went to Auburn. I remember Danielle. She's awesome. I still talk to her now. All of her siblings went to Auburn. I was like, I want to study architecture out of state. And they were like, oh, architecture, that's Auburn. You should go to Auburn. I was like, okay. That's how you ended up at Auburn. That was your path to Auburn. Yeah. And I got there and was like, wow, this is so different from what I'm used to. This is crazy. And I remember Chelsea Green going, Marianne, I can't believe you're going to Alabama. (laughs) She was like, no, you You don't don't understand. (laughs) That said, I just drank for anything and for everything and ran away. I went to college in Alabama. I went to New York right after that. Mm -hmm. And I would always come back to visit. I would come back to visit you guys. 
when you lived in the Bay Area, I would come back home for holidays, but I was gone. I didn't want to be anywhere related to my home. I was out with Maya yeah. one night. And the last thing I remember is at six o'clock in the afternoon, we were sitting at the old Javier's in Laguna. Oh yeah, of course. And then I woke up at like midnight handcuffed to a hospital bed. I don't remember anything in between. And thank God nothing happened. I mean, I got in my car and tried to drive to find Maya. She left early and went to try and find someone. You know, Laguna, everything's walking distance. So she was walking somewhere to find somebody. And I got in my car to drive and find her. And evidently I got in a car accident and I hit two parked cars. Thank God up on Merle Street in North Laguna. That's where she was going. I got there. I could have hit a baby or an old man or dogs. Like I could have killed somebody and I didn't. Holy shit. And so then after I, you know, I remember being handcuffed to the hospital bed, waking up being like, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Such a scene. (laughs) (laughs) The fuck? Thank God. What am I done? What are you guys doing? I I have rights. Okay. Oh my God. The policeman was standing next to me and you know, the ER doctor was there. He's like, Oh, you got in a car accident and you know, you have a small injury on your elbow. I had something happened where the steering wheel hit my elbow. It was fine, Yeah, but it made a mark. So they're like, Oh, we have to take her in. And he was like, you're in a car accident. And the policeman was like, you broke the law, you know, getting all gnarly with me, which is fine. I mean, I was a shitty drunk girl. Like it was obnoxious. And the doctor kind of rolled his eyes and was like, she's fine. You can take the handcuffs off of her. Like, please. Yeah. Yeah. She's not going to start throwing punches. She can barely handle herself. (laughs) These skinny white girl arms are not going to reach me or you. No one's taking nobody down right now, which is kind of the whole gist of it. In Laguna, they take you to the local jail. Shit. You have to sleep there. And I woke up on the floor of the jail, snuggling with a homeless woman. Holy shit. (laughs) I had a mug shot. How traumatic that must've been for you. What was going through your head? My only reference to sobriety at the time was Heidi's dad was sober our whole upbringing. So I knew about a through him, but only like all of your friends drink diet Coke at parties. How funny. Then I had met just a couple of weeks before that, I had met a friend of the family who I hadn't talked to in a long time because I was out of town. And then I was talking to her and she's so like Mary Jo Stelzer, she's so beautiful and she has the, you know, the best family. And I was like, what are you doing? You look great. She's like, oh, I've been going to meetings. I was like, meetings? What do you mean meetings? Like I was, t- I didn't know what any of it meant. And she's like, oh, AA meetings. I was like, oh, are you not like so oblivious? I was like, are you an alcoholic? Is that, and she's like, yes. Like we were at a party. She's like, she's like, can you keep your voice down? (laughs) I just didn't know what any of it meant. So the next morning when I got my one phone call, oh, they made me take my belly ring out because that's going to be dangerous. And also that's what we did in the nineties. We pierced our belly button. (laughs) So gross. So freaking nineties. I can't even... Oh, and I had overalls on with like a white t-shirt and those, you know, remember those stacked black flip-flops? A hundred percent. That was my whole getup. And I remember waking up going, ew, like I am gross. Like I have to burn this entire outfit. Well, my whole, I have to burn myself. Like <laughs> I'm so gross, Holy you know, and like, like on a deeper level inside, 
I feel like I am on top of the world. Like I feel like I am so badass and I am going to handle it. I'll give you all the advice. Yeah. What do you want to do? Yeah. I've been to New York. I know. I got it. And yeah. And on the outside, I was not. And in AA, they call that when you realize your outsides don't match your insides. There's yes. like a disconnect in your big me and your little big me. Big me, little me. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So that morning I got my phone call and I called Mary Jo. And I didn't even know how I remembered her number. And I don't know how I was possessed to even call her, but she was like, oh my goodness, I'll come and get you right now. At that point, like this light switch went off in my head, like, I need a guidebook for life. This is, I'm not doing it right. Something's, <gasps> something's wrong. I'm 25 and I should be farther along. This is awful. And so I was like, I want to go to a meeting. And she was like, no, just because you have a car accident doesn't mean you're an alcoholic. This is something really deep and really serious if you yeah. dive into it. And I was like, no, I'm there. So I have so, so many questions. First yeah. of all, A, I'm so sorry that happened to you, Coco. Like, I love you so much. And I would have been there at that jail cell picking your ass up if I lived anywhere near you. I just hate that you had to go through that, A. But B, it's kind of rad that you went through it because it led you to live a life on purpose and with intention instead of just being dragged by whatever. Well, and you know, there's no regrets now. It led me yeah. to where I am now. And yeah. I mean, you know, when you dig deeper, I'm not the only one. Every time I see a story of Anthony Bourdain really cut me, he was in recovery and he broke his recovery and started drinking and... Shit. And then yeah. he hung himself I know. in the blacked out state. Like that's where I feel like the deepness and the sadness of alcoholism, it takes you there. We have friends who have died. It takes you there. That's where and, it goes. And if you're not an alcoholic, you're not an alcoholic and you don't get it. And of course you have so many questions because you're not an alcoholic. This is the thing that worries me about it though. What I'm coming to realize is that there's alcoholics that are like, my stepdad was in recovery and he couldn't even have like cough syrup because it had a trace of alcohol and that would trigger whatever. And I think we have this binary definition of like, you're either one of those people that can't ever drink again, or you don't have a problem and you don't belong in that bucket. And I think there's a whole lot of us lot somewhere of in between. And also my beloved business coach, Ben Kiker, who I always talk about, who's been on my show twice, he says alcoholism and usingism, it's a progressive illness. So whether it's drinking or cocaine or whatever it is, a little here and there suddenly becomes an everyday thing. And before you know it, now you do have a feeling of powerlessness over it. What I was noticing just during the whole COVID thing is I was building a real casual daily drinking habit every single day. And it was like, I couldn't, find relaxation without it. And the days were so intense that I needed that downgrade. Mm -hmm. And it scared me. I was like, well, it's hard for me not to drink. I'm finding that that control, quote unquote, I think I have, I don't actually have it. So what I did was I just started getting up ridiculously early. And I so enjoy my morning practice that I don't even want to drink the night before because it means I can't get up and do my magical unicorn hours in the early morning. So that fixed it for me. But I think if I had waited and really cemented that habit, the allure of a morning meditation and coffee and journal session wouldn't have been enough to break the habit. And like you, I think there's so many of us who are 
from our generation where we were latchkey kids, our parents did the absolute best they could. And apparently our kids are the most parented generation. We We are the least parented generation. And like you, alcohol was like, that was how I had my social life. I'm a total introvert. I only like conversations when they're like this. And the only way I can deal with being in a room of small talking is by drinking. It's so interesting you say that because it's so real. That is exactly what it is. Being sober strips you of any of the small talk. And you can certainly make the small talk, but both of you are keenly aware that one of you is capable of way more than small talk. And if the person on the other side who isn't sober feels uncomfortable with your sobriety, they say that it's only their issue. It's not yours because your sobriety is, it's a lot of pressure though. It's not normal to be sober. So I get cut from a lot of invites and like, I get a lot of like, girl, the minute you start again, I'll be at your door with a bottle of wine. I don't like that. It's totally normal though. Yeah, it is. And and it's, it's such a source of comfort and pleasure and social connection for people that I get it. At this point now I have a drink on Friday nights as a ritual and a drink on Saturday nights as a ritual and that's it. And I feel like I'm in that gray zone. I remember this was the summer before Kevin Rice passed away. So this was the summer of 2017, maybe it was 2015, I can't remember. And it was our high school reunion, our last one. It was like 25 or however many freaking years it's been, I don't remember. And I was looking at you thinking, how could you possibly get through this reunion without alcohol? I was like, how do you do that? How the flock did you do that, Marianne? It's a lot. It's, it's a, lot. a lot. Build up. And then my biggest thing at the end of the night, if you've been drinking, you can yeah. just lay yourself to sleep. You don't have to decompress. Mm-mm. I come home and watch reruns of Saturday Night Live until three in the morning. You're kidding you me. Know, and just to decompress? Jeez, just to decompress. Yeah. Oh, and I'd be like, oh my God. Oh my God. You don't have anywhere to hide. There's no hiding. And everyone else is drunk, so you're okay. But there's no room for mistakes. I don't know anything different now. I love the clarity. I look back on the Marianne at 25, and it's a totally different person. And, you know, my husband is. In what sense? When you say clarity, say more about that. What do you mean about clarity? Yeah. So when I first got sober, I went to the Canyon Club here in Laguna. Laguna is actually a hotbed for recovery. I didn't know that. You'll see many of the celebrity at this Canyon Club. And I went in, like I mentioned, I was 25 and I was like, I'm way behind on my progress. I remember you had started your business. You and Colleen had just gotten an apartment in San Francisco. And I was like, fuck, I'm nowhere near that. Like, how am I not doing this? So I went to the Canyon Club and was like, I need a guidebook for life. And they gave me a copy of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is like a second. Is that the big book? Is that what it's called? The big yeah. book? Uh-huh. This is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Wow. And the first thing you do is read the chapter. Chapter five is what I read first. It's called How It Works. And it gives you the steps. And you just like read it and take it in. Or I did. I read it yeah. and took it in. And then you have to find a sponsor. And the sponsor really just kind of is an older person that you kind of sit through a couple of meetings and observe what they say and how they say it. And it's a program of attraction. So it's, if it's someone that you admire, you yeah. want what they have kind of thing. Oh, then, interesting. Um, 
you approach them. And if they've been there long enough, meaning if they're comfortable with it, then they'll take you on and just work all this stuff through with it. It's like free therapy. And they say that, you know, doing this out of service helps your sobriety and it helps the newcomer. And the whole program is about the newcomer. So I went to this meeting and everyone is in Mercedes and they have Rolexes. It's seven in the morning. Everyone's like dolled up and ready to go to work. And I was like, fuck yeah, this is what I need. Like I need to learn how to live. Like You're like, I want to be a sober fucking baller like these people. I want to sit down with my perfect raincoat with the mink trim and her beautiful wedding ring. And this is how she starts her day. You know, I'm like, dude, I want that. Well, I just started like hanging out there more. And, you know, the more you sit and take it in, the more you learn about it. And I got a sponsor and she still is. She's amazing. She, I remember once she's also a therapist and, you know, Yale trained, like incredible. And I was sitting in her office and I was like, I just am so offended. My mom said that I'm bad with money. (gasps) And she goes, well, Marianne, are you? <laughs> it's like, ah, no. She's like, well, do you have a say? Like she started asking all the questions. I was like, ah, you know, it's like a real honesty yeah. program. And so then, wow. you know, right when it started to really kick in, I brought up this prayer. It's called the promises of AA, the promises of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want you to maybe look at it later or anyone who's listening to this. If you do need encouragement, this really got me through. I remember waking up some mornings being like, I just don't know what to do. And it wasn't like I was hopeless. I've always been a hopeful, driven, ambitious, cheerful person, but it's like tons of dreams. Yes. I just didn't have anyone to help me get there. I was alone. So the promises just gave me the parenting that I needed. And it starts with, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. And it just literally promises you all the stuff you need. Like, it's going to be okay. Oh, girl. Oh, Coco. Yeah. So it still gets to me. And for me... With the way I parent, with the way I live my business life, with my marriage, none of it comes as second nature to me. Like we joke about being naturally maternal. I'm not naturally a maternal person. I have to Pinterest the fuck out of how to be a good mom, right? I'm so with you, girl, because we didn't have that. I always tell my best friends that I feel like, and this is true of everybody on some level, but. I feel like I was raised by wolves in certain parts of my life. Like I just don't know certain things because it just wasn't in the curriculum. Right? Yeah. Thank you note thing, the follow-up on meetings thing, like all the little bits that really together good people do. Yes. I just, you know, sending Christmas cards. Jesus, help me. The only time we started sending Christmas cards was because Sal was like, this is what people do. And I was like, oh, really? Okay. Parties, I always overcompensate for my kids. Like I go at one point, Ellis had a Star Wars party and I called this guy that does media for Star Wars. I was like, Hey, can I borrow your live characters for R2D2? And he was about to do it. And I was going to donate to this like kids foundation. He was going to do a meet and greet. And I was like, dude, we can get fucking BB-8 too. (gasps) And the only person for like the birthday party thing, the things that I have like a reference of like, no, you're going too far is a friend of mine who came from a big 
party background because Mike, his mom would go over the top and he's like, yeah, that seems, seems totally normal. Cool. Yeah, let's do it. Let's, you want to get a live band? Let's do it. It's like a quinceanera and a bar mitzvah every year. Really? For four-year-olds. Four. Um, <laughs> and then five-year-olds and yeah. six-year-olds. Yeah. So none of it came naturally. So this kind of gave me a guidebook and then also put me in a realm of people who were either willing to learn or could teach me. And then you found a tribe that you were like, I want what they have. Yes. That's the other thing I think a lot of us women are struggling with right now is especially we're in middle age. And I think some of us look around at our tribes and we go, "Uh, is this what I, what is this? Am I into this? I don't know if I'm into this. And at first you guys were attracted to each other because your kids were in the same class. And that's it. Just needed a warm body who was sick of changing poopy diapers. And we could just talk about how goddamn sick we were of changing poopy diapers or whatever. Totally. Yeah. But now we're at the point where like there's an awakening happening and we need a spark. We need energy. Yeah. To create more energy. And I think we need authenticity. And you know what gives me hope though, Coco, is just in terms of like leaving behind the realm of small talk and entering real talk. Mm -hmm. Have you read Untamed by Glennon Doyle? I've read parts of it. Yeah. I am obsessed with that book. I think it's so powerful. And I think a lot of women are reading it and starting to get past the surface layer way of Mm -hmm. communicating with each other and seeing each other as the goddamn cheetahs that we are because we are fierce creatures. But I do appreciate you breaking this down for us because I think I grew up seeing AA as where Burly dudes with tats would go. 100% coming, baffling, and powerful disease, man. Right. And there's that too. Oh, there's all of it. You know, I'm really, I've just been talking to my higher power lately. That's it. That's it. When I lived on Greenwich in San Francisco, there was like an AA meeting across the street and it was always men. Mm -hmm. It was always- cigarettes early in the morning. Yes. And I'm like, that's why I think a lot of women- I think maybe the millennials don't feel this way, but I think of AA as a male. It was started by two men. And a lot of the early verbiage of the first Alcoholics Anonymous book was very. It was patriarchal. Yes, totally. Chauvinist even. Wow. It's kind of evolved now. I mean, now recovery is everywhere. And And it's kind of cool to be in recovery now. Absolutely. And there's celebrities who are sober and everyone gets wanted and it's fine. You know, like it's good. Let me ask you this. If you were talking to someone who's sober curious, as they say, that's now a thing, which I love. And you were trying to explain to them how to get through a social experience. You got to go to a party because it's the only friends you have and they're still drinking, even if you're not. Mm -hmm. What do you do to get through the party? You need to have someone to check in with that knows you might be uncomfortable. Even if they're drinking, you need to be able to go to them and say, And it's not always, some people react and say, okay, let's leave. It's not always, I want to leave. It's just, I want to go to the bathroom with you, put more lip gloss on and just talk about how much so-and-so bugs me because they're slurring their words. At the reunion, Maya was next to me and I was like, dude, let's duck out for a second. Oh, no way. So that was part of your strategy and you would have a little moment. Have like a wingman that helps you. Okay. And that's the other thing. I think the other misperception people have is that once you enter sobriety, you leave the tribe, but you don't. Not at all. And that gets difficult sometimes with like 
traveling with families and holidays and that kind of stuff. Cause really nobody understands. So then after Mike and I went on our first date, a couple of weeks later, he went home and had dinner with his, I was living in LA. So he went home, had dinner the next day with his best friend. And he was like, dude, I met this girl. I think she's the one <gasps> drink. And he was like, really? And he's like, yeah, it was fine. We just talked like it was fine. Mike drank like that's what you do when you're out to dinner. Like you have, yes. have a beer, go have a glass of wine. Yes. And so they spent the whole night trying to think of like a reference point for what it would be like with a couple that they knew where like one person did one thing and one person didn't do the other thing. It took them six hours to land on, you know what? Heather Mills and Paul McCartney. She has one leg. <laughs> you are the Heather Mills to his Paul McCartney. Or he is the Heather Mills to your Paul McCartney, actually. Thank you. Let it be. I was like, so um, it's a disability or like, like what does that limb? mean? Like a missing limb? Yeah, that's wow. a joke. But Marianne, that's fascinating because it's so out of the norm that yeah. people had to really try and like wrap their head around what it meant. Like, what does it look like for a couple in which one drinks and the other doesn't? Yeah. What's it like for you guys? Like when you go on vacation or go to dinner, he'll get a glass of wine and you don't and everything's okay. I mean, it's fun. Now being a chef, I get invited to dinner sometimes with other chefs and I don't talk about my private life at all. Yeah. And I remember specifically, we were at a restaurant and it was the kind of restaurant that does like seatings, you know, like they yeah. fill the whole dining room at one time. It's like a formal situation. And they brought out bottles of wine, Miriam and Mike, oh, you're our special guest, full bottles of wine and poured. And Mike and I have a system where we kind of like, he'll drink the first glass really fast. And my glass is sitting and then we'll swap out. So he'll just drink all the wine. And I that's do- amazing. And then it looks like you're partaking, even though you're not partaking. totally, and it's so nobody gets uncomfortable or weird. Nobody gets uncomfortable. We think it's hilarious. And at the end of the night, there's one particular, it was pouring down rain and we stepped outside to get some air and he came back in. He was like, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> We were like halfway through dinner. I was like, dude, you better step it up. We've got like, three more courses. You got to get it together. You that is it. hilarious. <laughs> that is hilarious. Yeah. So I love this because it shows there's not enough people talking about how it works. When you decide to take a sober path, you can still be in the world and of the world and not disappear mm-hmm. into a realm of AA meetings and leave behind your family and your friends forever. No, not at all. It is difficult though. It's not normal. Yeah. So when it's time to pour wine or pour champagne, I always get a glass by accident. Even friends yeah. of ours who we've known for 15 years, yeah, will pour me a glass, which is fine. And I just kind of, or someone doesn't understand what it means. And they're like, oh, please just have some. <gasps> okay. Well, that's fine. I'll just take it. And uh, there's always someone else who does understand. So I just kind of trade it off. It's fine. Cause you don't want to make anybody feel weird. And it's like having an allergy kind of, and yeah, like, you're like, like, don't yeah. make fun of the gluten-free kid. No, I can't have lactose. Intolerant. Totally, totally. <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. And so how many years do you have sober now? 22 years. Congratulations. That's such an accomplishment, honey. I've read and I've heard from many people that the relapse factor because of COVID is off the charts right mm-hmm. now. Like mm-hmm. people are really hurting. What do you attribute your success even through the last 12 months to? 
what has allowed you to stay committed? Is it just that it isn't even a temptation anymore? I will say it's not a temptation because I just have shut that part off. I just refuse. Sometimes I'm like, you know what? I could do a gummy. Once I was- A gummy. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. Once I was listening to a thing about ayahuasca. Yeah. And I called, because it's therapeutic. I mean, it's prescribed by psychiatrist. Yeah. Yeah. So I called my friend, Victor. The thing is, sober people are so flawed. They're fucking hilarious. That's rad. And so I called my friend Victor, who's like so fancy and knows exactly what ayahuasca is and watches podcast and all of it. <laughs> Modalities like, of various sorts. <laughs> I was like, do no, it like if I'm having a bad day, he'll be like, Do you need a blowout? Let's go get a blow. <laughs> I called and was like, listen, I think I should do ayahuasca. He's like, listen, I think you're a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Victor. And you're like, yeah, "Yeah." I know, I know. That's amazing. That's amazing. I really respect and admire your openness and your willingness to tell that story. But the part that I so resonate with is when you're raised by wolves on some level, Mm -hmm. the trying to make sense of the world and fit in and make your way in the world and move forward that alcohol factor is part of that journey, I think. Totally. It enters into the equation as we're trying to find our footing. And that is simply- right. And it's easier journey. to meet someone for a glass of wine and talk yes. business yes. or taste your client's new wine that they had at their vineyard in Napa that'll go perfect with the food you're going to make for them. Yeah. But it is what it is. Yeah. And as soon as they find out that I'm sober, then they're like, oh my God. You know, it's of course. Yeah. And it's good that you're so open about it because then people can ask you questions. What I love about your story is how the AA book became, okay, this is what nobody told you. This is how to live. This is how it works. This is what integrity is, or this is what whatever. When you think about the early lessons, what was the one that was like, oh, that's how it works. Like, do you remember a moment where you were like, aha, didn't know that phrase called keeping your side of the street clean. And it's about everything. It's about misunderstandings that you have to apologize for or re-explaining your side because you feel misunderstood where many times you would just let things go unsaid. You make sure it's clear. Now it's confirming appointments and times. It happened today where like, I thought it was 12 o'clock and then I was like, oh fuck, it's two o'clock for you and I today. Keeping your side of the street clean is the hyper-communication that high-achieving individuals have that You don't learn it from reading it in a book. You learn it by example, watching your people be kind of upstanding individuals, you know, or, you know, having Ellis email his teacher because he has a question about his grade. Yeah. Well, that's something that you have to do because it's on your heart. You need to keep your side of the street clean. If you feel like you're in the wrong or you're in the right, you need to clean that path so that you can talk about it. I love that. That and one other thing when being a, an extremely like hyper-focused, controlling, driven person, I have a plan. Yes. And I don't want to compromise the plan. Sometimes it doesn't work out when I'm on my plan and I get an opportunity and it just doesn't work out. Yeah. And there's a phrase, God is doing for you what you can't do for yourself. Where like, you know what? The universe, God, whoever, it's going to happen, but it's not going to happen this way. So just let go of that and keep plowing forward. Tell me the phrase again, Coco. God is doing for you what you can't do for yourself. 
Yes. Like fall back and be like, okay. Trust fall. Cosmic <laughs> trust fall. <laughs> that is really right. That is right. And the whole past year has been. 100% that. Right? experience of that. Oh my God. Yes. We just keep falling sometimes. But you're right. I think that's so beautiful. And I think my whole intention for having this conversation with you is that I don't think enough women are talking about this and talking about the spectrum of ways to deal with alcohol, with using, and the more of us that just talk it out, the more we can normalize dealing with it. Because right now, I think it's just the background noise. Right. You know, like that white noise that's driving you nuts, but you don't stop to turn off the freaking fan. I think alcohol has become really insidious white noise for a lot of us. And I think we need to do something about it. Absolutely. There's one quote that I read by Glennon Doyle recently. She is sober as well. Yes. I read a quote by her saying that something to the effect of if you're having a hard time, just know that it ends and then it's going to get better. It just does. If you can just ride out the hard time, go to bed, wake up the next day and it'll be better. Yes. I loved that. It's like, it sucks and you're exhausted and then you go to sleep and you get filled all back up again. And then you wake up and you have another shot at it. Right. Like you're physically exhausted. You're emotionally exhausted. Mike says night brings counsel. So go to bed. You're not even trying to find the answer. You're going to wake up and be like, you know what? I know how to do this. Well, I have observed that, especially because these days of mine are so long these days and I get so tired and by four o'clock, I have all these things I have to do. And I'm like, you know what? If I get up and use some morning time for this, it'll take me 10 minutes. But right now it'll take me two hours because I'm shattered into a million. 100%. Exactly. Yes. Night brings counsel. Night brings counsel. I know. It's a good one. And then also, if anyone needs to know about AA or about finding help, they can certainly contact me directly. I'm happy to give them resources or they can just Google AA in their area. It's easy to find and you have to pick and choose the meetings, like make sure you go to one. Yeah. Yeah. If you're not comfortable, you're not going to stick. Well, if you're not hearing your own story either, you know. Oh, right. You want to be able to relate to the people that you're listening to, too. Got it. Oh, that makes total sense. Because that's part of the power of it. We carry around all this private shame and then we go to these meetings, we hear our own story and we realize this is everybody's story. Mm -hmm. Some of the biggest laughs I've had are like one-upping each other on just terrible alcohol experiences, like embarrassing moments of being like making phone calls or, oh shit, right? Walks of shame the next day. I mean, alcoholics can really go there. (laughs) Come for the sobriety, stay for the laughs. Seriously, there's no shocking anyone. That's the best. Right. Well, Coco, I love you deeply and immensely. And I thank you for your courage. I thank you for your willingness to share. And congratulations on 22 years, babe. That's magical. Thank you. And thank you for asking me to do this. I hope that it helps the people who need to hear it. I think it will. And I'll make sure all of your stuff is in the show notes and all that stuff. So I love you. Have a beautiful day. You too. Take care. God, I loved that. I'm so inspired by her. And you guys, as of this recording, I'm on day eight of a no alcohol experiment, which is part of a whole 30 that I'm doing. And I got to tell you, I feel so amazing. My sleep is incredible. I'm so much more patient with my kids at night. I really don't miss it that much. And I just wanted to tell you that not to be like, oh my God, I'm doing so great, you guys. 
But in case you're scared about what's on the other side, there's awesomeness on the other side. I gotta tell you, like my anxiety, y'all, is down. My sleep is incredible. It's just, it's pretty much a win across the board. But if you're like 48 hours into sobriety or you're trying it and you're really struggling, that's okay too. That's okay too. Just get support. And that's really what this conversation was about. It was about really looking at what is our relationship with alcohol? How's it making us feel? How are we using it emotionally? And what might a big, beautiful life look like without it or with a lot less of it? So I will be including resources in my show notes to everything we talked about. And just make sure you're signed up, bronwyncommunications.com forward slash subscribe and dig it, get into it. Thank you for being with me as always and shine on my friend. We need your light.